Resentment, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 1. What you are about to hear is a public lecture given by Gil Bailey at the City Hall in Brisbane, Australia in July of 2003. Well, the topic for today is the religious challenges of the 21st century. These challenges are not, are not identical to the spiritual challenges of the 21st century, but they are deeply embedded in one another. And what I'm going to talk about today uh, are the, spiritual cha- the religious challenges I'm going to try to talk about them at an anthropological level rather than a doctrinal level. I'm sure you'll be pleased to hear me say that. Uh, But even the anthropological level uh, has its complexities. So I will be mostly talking about the religious challenges of the 21st century. But at the same time, and especially later, there will be implications for the spiritual challenge, which is very much related to the religious challenge. And I will be thinking about both of these challenges with a mind that is so thoroughly Christianized that I should admit that to you so you understand the lens through which I'm seeing this. It happens to be the lens that has been the one for me that has been most illuminating, but at least you should know that's the lens through which I I see these things. Now, Kevin Mongrain, interesting writer on theology and so on, he's made an interesting observation apropos of today, it seems to me. He says it is, it is illegitimate to attempt to explain the concrete revelation, which is to say the Judeo-Christian revelation, to neutral outsiders in universal terms. You can't do it that way, he says. What you can do, what is legitimate, is to, quoting him, to demonstrate the universal truth of Christianity through concrete gestures and lived example. Well, I'm not sure I can live up to the lived example part of that, but concrete gestures, or at least in this case, concrete examples of what is happening in our world from an anthropological point of view. When I, that I approach these things anthropologically, it means I'm already inside the biblical world because anthropological curiosity is aroused in the biblical world. The first scientific anthropologist, the first scientific discipline calling itself anthropology emerges 150 years ago, so you could say anthropology only began uh, in the 19th century, but uh, that's only if you ignore Jeremiah and Isaiah and St. Paul, who brought to their reflection on 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 the human mystery an immense anthropological sensibility long before it became a discipline. So I'm drawing on that. So I'm going to look at a number of stories, a number of concrete situations, and uh, reflect on them, ask you to reflect on them. But I'm not going to look at the situations that you would probably list as the ones that need to be looked at. That is to say, I'm not going to look at situations that have captured the headlines. And that for a number of reasons, one of which is that you and I have a very strong to look at situations that are headline-capturing situations and interpret these situations politically, economically, sociologically, even psychologically. And I don't think we get much that way. And it's such a deeply embedded habit in us. We've, we've inherited that from, from modernity and the Enlightenment, uh, which launched all these disciplines, these interpretive tools, uh, 
political thinking and uh, economic thinking and so on and so forth. And they do throw some light on our situation, but they don't throw enough. So one of the things that I try to do is break the habit of immediately interpreting things in terms of politics and economics and to go to a deeper level and to think about them anthropologically. Uh, for one thing, you cannot even begin to understand the religious crisis of the 21st century without developing at least a rudimentary anthropological sensibility. So I'm going to take a leaf out of Barbara Tuckman's book. She wrote a book called The Distant Mirror. So she described things in the 14th century so that we could see something about the 20th. So that's sort of what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a few stories from the margins that are not headline grabbers and reflect on them and hope to use those to go to the anthropological depth and ask something about what is happening in our world. To give these reflections a sort of local habitation and a name, to quote Shakespeare, I will tell you that when I came through Sydney on my way to Perth two weeks ago, at the Sydney airport I bought a Sydney Morning Herald and the headline, I said I wasn't going to talk about headlines, but it was actually a headline, in the Sydney Morning Herald was that the New South Wales Federation of Teachers were protesting, demanding that something be done about student violence against teachers in the New South Wales schools. This is not the kind of story that one would have read 30 years ago. So I offer that as a opening gambit in our reflection. Today, as I went to the Sydney airport to come up here, I bought a newspaper, and the headlines in this newspaper had to do with a sharp rise in the incidence of violence at teenage parties. That is to say, people have been killed, stabbed, shot, sent to the hospital, bones broken, in fights that have been breaking out at teenage parties. There's a sort of uptick in this problem. Exhibit B. Let me begin by, just with those two stories, going back to the end of the 19th century. At the end of the 19th century, a number of important thinkers in the West began to thematize or discuss an issue. They used the French term resentiment, which is our word for resentment, and they said, this is a problem. Resentment is becoming a major problem and it must be investigated. And what they understood, most of them, many of them, and the people I'm talking about are Nietzsche, Dostoevsky, Stendhal, Max Scheler, Kierkegaard, the people like that. They're all cluster around this issue of resentment. And in, in their own way, they each say the problem with resentment is a historical problem. That is to say, to understand what's happening, you have to understand the historicity of resentment, namely, it's increasing. In other words, they didn't just take a snapshot of it the way, for example, Freud did with the conflict in the family. Freud took a snapshot of it, ignored its historicity, and assumed that it had always been that way, and then sexualized his interpretation of it. You're not, you don't want to hear about Freud, but the, what I'm saying is what these thinkers did is something more important. They noticed, not, they didn't just take a snapshot and just say, well, it, we've always had that much resentment. They noticed that we haven't always had that much resentment, that there's this historical uptick in resentment. 
So that's a very important insight. And the example that is, I think, an interesting one for uh, trying to understand that is from a movie that we had in the States. I don't know if you saw it here. It was called Apollo 13. It was about the, the Apollo 13 um, expedition to space. Uh, they had a problem. Houston, we have a problem. The problem was they had this little machine for getting rid of the carbon dioxide in the cabin, and suddenly it's not working. And they begin to choke. You see, they're choking on their own carbon dioxide. And they radio Houston, and Houston tells them how to take, uh, you know, plastic bags and duct tape. It's always duct tape, isn't it? I mean, what could we do with that? Anyway, plastic bags, duct tape, dirty socks, and other things, and make something that will make do till they get back. And so there's the whole drama of that. Well, we used to have something that took resentment out of the system. And that thing, like the Apollo 13 spacecraft, uh, that little mechanism has been malfunctioning. It has not been taking resentment out of the system. And therefore, the 19th century thinkers who've noticed uh, that resentment was on the increase uh, were recognizing really the, the effects of the lack of efficiency in this little mechanism that used to take it away. So the question is, what is that mechanism that used to take away resentment? Now that's one question. And the other question is, why, why isn't it working anymore? Well, to give you the briefest little summary, because I want to get on to other things, uh, what I'm going to summarize is all of uh, René Girard's anthropological insights in three minutes, I hope. We know from experience, if we consult our experience, that social units purge themselves of internal animosity by finding an external adversary or an internal troublemaker against whom they can galvanize. In other words, a community can galvanize itself, unify itself, over against someone inside that's regarded as highly worthy of being expelled or killed as a source of all problems, or an external adversary that needs to be resisted or, or fought. All kinds of peace can happen in a community that uh, uses such mechanisms. It turns out that that mechanism not only rejuvenates huge societies as well as little tiny committees and families and all kinds of social units can plug into this mechanism, bring themselves together in unanimity as long as they have someone over against whom to vent their animosity. What that means is that the resentment in each person and, in, and that's circulating in the social unit is simply exported. So it's just drained off in the general direction of the, of the one whom they regard as despicable or evil or a threat or whatever. So it's, a, it's, a, it's sort, of, sort of socio-psychological hygiene. You just export it and drain it out of the system towards the other. Well, it turns out that that's how culture itself began. If you go back to the ancient world, every time you find a culture at the center of culture, you find a religion, and every time you find a religion at the center of the religion, you find an altar of blood sacrifice, an altar where victims are killed violently. 
And if you have evidence that tells you about that sacrifice, it will tell you that the people who participated in it regarded it as a reenactment of the event that brought the world into being, the culture world. In other words, a reenactment of the event that created their culture. And the question is, what must that event have been? These rituals were not born out of the creative imagination. They explicitly acknowledge that they are reenactments of a prior event, and the prior event could not have been a ritual because all rituals define themselves as reenactments. So there had to be one event that wasn't a reenactment, that was a spontaneous event, and it gets reenacted. And it was an event that took all the frenzy and fear and terror and panic of a community. We humans are always falling into that and galvanize that community into a social unit with enough coherence to begin to form a culture. To make a very long story short, something like what we call scapegoating was the origin of human culture. Now, parentheses, if you have any Christian affinities here, you, it, it leads you to the question why did he have to die on the cross to save us? Why couldn't he have died of leprosy? I'm getting ahead of my story here, but what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to do, even with just these two little stories of uh, the Sydney teachers and the teenage parties, a little reflection on resentment. Resentment is going up. We had a machine for getting rid of it. The machine for getting rid of it is what we call scapegoating. Now, as soon as you have a word like scapegoating, it means you know too much about it for it to work very well. It only works if you don't know what you're doing. As soon as you have a word scapegoat, with all the moral implications of scapegoat, you're in trouble. It means you know too much for it to work very well. And the question is, why do we have that word? And why do we know too much? And why is it not working? Do, have we stopped scapegoating? No, it's worse than ever. But it's not working. It's not creating the community. It's not taking out the resentment. It's actually turn, returning resentment to the community, and that's why we're choking on it. So now I already said things about the origin of culture and the meaning of the crucifixion. And these, this is Tomorrow we're going to talk about all those things, but I'm not going to talk about those this afternoon. I'm just going to say it kind of that quickly and go on and take a look at concrete situations and, and ask you to reflect anthropologically on them. If you went back three or four hundred years and looked, searched the lexicon of the, of the time, you would find that the word violence didn't occur nearly as much as it does today. It occurs in every paragraph today. I mean, it's everywhere. We say the word all the time. So what are we to draw? What conclusion do we draw? There's more violence today. That would be one conclusion that is maybe true, maybe not. Another conclusion is that we see it today more than we did four or five hundred years ago. So we see it today, and at the same time, resentment is rising. Why do we see it? What kept us from seeing it? five or six hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, what kept us from seeing it? There's a lot of violence you don't see. The violence you don't see is the violence that you think of as sacred. That is to say, the violence that is, that is just and necessary 
and appropriate to the situation. We use the word violence to mean a, a, something that should not have happened. Uh, it's a violation, it comes from the same word, it's a violation, you see, of the, of the order of things. If you go back and interview an Aztec priest at the top of the Aztec altar when he's about to cut the heart out of the victim and hold it up to the sun god, and you said to him, gee, this seems like a violent act, he wouldn't know what you're talking about. You see what I mean? The word violence as we use it simply wouldn't apply to that, you see? Nor would it apply to hanging somebody who was guilty of some terrible crime. You and I might see it as violent, but people in the past didn't, it didn't register the way the word violence registers now. It had sacrality, you see? It had a moral privilege, and therefore you don't see it. And this not seeing of violence is what the Bible talks about when it talks about having eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear. See? There's, a, there's a certain amount of violence we simply don't see because it has a sacred attribution to it. So with that as a background, I want to tell you three stories which have diminishing forms of sacrality. They're all stories of violence, so this is for adult audiences. But each has a diminishing form of sacrality. So you can see how it is that people who experience violence as sacred don't really see it the same way. And then we have a story where it's not quite sacred, but still a little bit. And then we have a story where it's not sacred at all. So I want to tell three stories. And then I want to tell three stories about the genealogy of resentment. Because as the diminution of sacrality happens, it means the mechanism for venting our violence with a kind of sense of moral righteousness begins to break down. Our resentment, we can't, we can't uh, purge ourselves of it, and so it builds up. So these two things need to be seen together. The decline of sacrality and the rise of resentment. So that's essentially what I'm going to try to do today as, a back, as an anthropological backdrop to the religious challenges and then, parenthetically, the spiritual challenges of the 21st century. The first story is from a story written by Mark Mason, who was a Seattle photojournalist who had uh, gone to Afghanistan back in the days of the Taliban. And he'd actually gone there to, to study Islam. And he attended an event that was a regular event on Fridays at the Kabul Stadium. And here's the way the story goes. On Friday afternoon, afternoon prayers, authorities in the capital, Kabul, staged the public stoning of adulterers and the hand-chopping of thieves. These punishments take place at the city soccer stadium recently restored with United Nations funds. An hour before showtime, a crowd had already queued at the entrance. There were fathers bringing their sons to view the first public hand-chopping, religious leaders arriving to see the word of the Koran faithfully carried out and hundreds of vendors who had a grand opportunity to hawk their goods amid the burgeoning crowd. A flood of spectators poured into the arena like a human wave scrambling for the best seats. Within 20 minutes, it was a capacity crowd of 35,000 ecstatic Afghans. The infield began to fill up with what looked like Taliban VIPs. I spotted several white-turbaned mullahs along with my own teacher. They sat on blankets, chatting nonchalantly and drinking tea. Finally, a handful of soldiers opened the car door, and a young man, about 20, 
stepped out. He stood still for a moment, slowly turned around in a complete circle as if to take in the scene. He appeared resigned to his punishment. They, they cut off his hand without anesthetic. I'll spare you some of this. It was not an easy uh, amputation. The carving took several minutes. Time seemed to stop. I surveyed the crowd. Some men sat with their children and pointed to the scene on the arena floor as a warning of the consequences of thievery. A few sat with arms folded across their chest, face, faces glowing with morose looks of satisfaction. The hand came off and fell to the ground. The MC picked it up. He held the dismembered appendage by the right index finger, and as blood dripped from its wrist, he spoke into the microphone, and the crowd came alive, cheering and jeering. The pale, unconscious criminal was thrown into the back of a truck. As the vehicle paraded around the stadium, the stands emptied onto the field. The crowd chased the makeshift ambulance, shouting and screaming one last taunt at the public enemy who had gotten his just reward. His crime? Stealing a pack of cigarettes. End of article. Well, eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear. This is clearly violence that is experienced as sacred. Now, whether or not the next day uh, people begin to have some mixed feelings about what happened the day before is another question. We don't know. But clearly in the moment, this is sacred violence. This is violence endowed with full sacrality by the religious institutions in this situation and experienced by the crowd that way. Now, there are plenty of Western things. I, I have one of my stories of that, so don't think that I'm doing something that's kind of skewed here culturally. That's not my point. I mean, I just take whatever the New York, New York Times has to offer, you know, so, so I'm, I, I, this is my anthropological database. So this is the New York Times story from Indonesia. And the headline of this story is, Witch Hunts in Java Called a Cover for murders. And now, I won't, I'll, I'll only read you part of this story, but the point, this is also very interesting. You see, there's witch hunts going on, uh, but some people are saying, these are not really witch hunts. These are just, they're just using the witch hunting rationale in order to take vengeance on their enemies. You see what I mean? So what does that mean? It means already people are beginning to see you see, if you really believe in witches and you really believe in witch hunting and so on, that's one thing. But if you start to think people are using it for some other reason, it means the sacrality is slipping. You know what I mean? It means people are saying, wait a minute, I think there's some other thing going on here. You see? So I offer this, and there are more things in this story that indicate that uh, clearly you've got a situation where it's not quite one thing and not quite another. And... Uh, the reason I'm sharing it with you to show you that we live in a world where this is happening. And I will come back to this story at the end of the talk because it ends in a most interesting way and uh, we should take a look at it. It tells us a lot about the religious challenges of the 21st century. But we'll come back to that. Anyway, here's the story. In this verdant farm belt of West Java, where sorcery and superstition have deep roots, Few were surprised last September when an angry mob decapitated a 70-year-old woman accused of casting spells that made people ill. Before lopping off her head, witnesses said the crowd gorged out her eyes, severed some of her limbs, which they tossed into the street. I'm sorry to do this. I mean, but 
if you want to know something about the religious challenges of the 21st century, we have to take a look at some of these things. Not that we're going to see that, but we're going to see that. Uh, but but it, we'll, we'll see other versions of it that don't look quite that uh, troubling. Beheadings of suspected witches are not uncommon in rural towns and villages of Java, Indonesia's most populous and perhaps most mystical island. The local police estimate that there are still at least 100 witch killings in Java last year. Still, few people seemed upset by the killings, which typically occur in Indonesia's backwaters and are committed under the guise of wiping out evil. A person can be branded a witch by being the last to have contact with someone who fell ill or suddenly died. Even common ailments like rashes, allergies, and flu are attributed to black magic. In some instances, healers are accused of being witches if they fail to rid the clients of disease. So healing itself, kind of the, uh, being a shaman, is a very, being a shaman is like being a priest in the ancient world. It's very dangerous, you know. If it doesn't work, you're, you're it. Although legally unjustifiable, the witch killing has long served as a mechanism for rural villages to expunge antisocial behavior, which is just a kind of New York Times way of saying. It, has, it performs a social hygiene. But it's really the, the antisocial behavior it expunges is the antisocial behavior of the victimizers. You see what I'm saying? The New York Times doesn't know that. But we should notice that. That is to say, they vent their violence and they become nicer people. They sort of calm down. They purge themselves in some cathartic way. And uh, So witch hunters are considered heroic in most villages because they rid the village of evil forces. When police first began detaining and questioning the suspects in the killings, local residents staged huge protests demanding that the suspects be freed. In one case, villagers overpowered police officers and held them hostage until the witch hunters were released. A 36-year-old farmer who had taken part in killing three witches said the area was overrun with witches who cast evil spells on many people. The only way to get rid of them, he said, is to kill them. Uh, at the end of the story, a University of Indonesian anthropologist is quoted as saying that the witch killing in the region dates back centuries at least as far back as the Dutch colonization. Now, implication there is, of course, that somehow it had to do with the arrival of the Europeans. I'll compare that to the last of my three stories, which is from Patterson, New Jersey, in the east coast of the United States. So again, it's the New York Times. It's a follow-up story about a, a mob killing that happened in Patterson. Now, to think anthropologically, you have to recognize things that have a ritual dimension. And lots of things have ritual dimensions that we don't, if we're all only looking through the Enlightenment lenses of political and economic thinking, we don't see these ritual dimensions, but we need to, we need to see them. What had happened at this high school is that there had developed a tradition, which is on the last day of school, the kids would just run amok and just terrorize and just abandon all rules. Well, this had happened several years, so it took on a kind of ritual thing. It was, it was not just a spontaneous thing. It had that, but then it also got out of hand. And the New York Times is doing a follow-up story. There had been a mob of teenage boys who had beaten a homeless man to death during one of these last day of school rituals. Eleven boys, ages 15 to 17, 
were arrested and interrogated for taking part in the beating. There were a good deal more than the 11 that did, but they located 11 and, and took them in to question them. And the title of the story is, Boys Tell of Man's Beating, But None Use the Word Murder. None Use the Word Murder. Now, eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear, the effect of eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear is that it eliminates any moral reaction to something that deserves moral reaction. So in this case, it is not eyes that, the eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear is not created by some kind of religious mystification, some kind of religious uh, attribution of sacrality to the violence. Uh, it's created by a moral vacuum, an evisceration of language a draining away of the moral content of language. And so you can talk about murder and you, without ever having to use the word murder. So they referred to this man that they murdered as some bum, the bummy-looking guy, the old guy, and the closest they got was the man who died. And the New York Times picks up on this, the fact that they, they simply don't seem to be able to recognize what they've done. You see, and now again, you have eyes that cannot see. Asked by a detective why he hit the man, the boy who delivered the first blow, and you know the first blow is the key one. He who has no sin, let him cast the first stone. If you want to stop something, you've got to stop that first stone because once it flies, it's finished. Then everybody has a model, and then it, it's an avalanche. It's a total avalanche. So it's a, the key thing is the first one because the first one has no model He's not doing it because he picked up on somebody else doing it. He's just doing it. So the key question here is, why did he do it? And they asked the boy who delivered the first blow, why did you do it? And he said, quote, for no reason. For no reason. Which happens to be, by the way, what Jesus said about why people hate him. They hate me for no reason. Now, this is why we need to think anthropologically, because when we don't, we think politically and economically and sociologically. We think about all these things, and all of those interpretations are an elaborate attempt to keep us from recognizing that a whole lot of violence happens for no reason. Reasons are attributed, and there's always some reasonably plausible reason. We can say, the reason we're killing these people is because what, what happened at the Battle of Kosovo in 1389, if you think back on that part of Eastern European history. You see what I mean? We're saying, well, we're doing this because of that. or we're, All kinds of reasons are produced. But if you go deeper, you realize that a whole lot of violence seizes on these reasons. They have some plausibility. But there's something else operating. There's another logos. There's another logic to that violence. And having said the word logos, I will abandon my notes for a second and give you a very odd little reflection on the pre-Socratic philosopher Heraclitus who talked about the logos of violence. And he says violence is the father of all things. It creates disorder but it also creates order. When he says logos, he means it has its own logic. It doesn't follow the logic of politics and economics or 
revenge or any of that. It has another logic. In other words, there's another reason for it. The logos of violence binds people together. It creates bonds with people. It also sows chaos and breaks bonds. But if you want to create them again, you use violence unanimously. So, so violence that is civil war must be replaced by unanimous violence. And then you have the logos of violence binding people together. Well, I shouldn't have gotten into that. For no reason. Jesus said his persecutors hated him for no reason. And this terrifying fact is what all our political and economic analyses exist to obliterate. The cross alone reveals it. Understandably dissatisfied with the boys for no reason, the Times reporter tells us that the adults of Patterson began, quote, casting about for explanations to the inexplicable. Because the defendants were used, the article says, quote, some said the case highlighted the paucity of after-school activities. In other words, we don't have enough after-school activities. I would ask you to compare that to the, to the innuendo at the end of the other story, which is this witch-burning goes back to when the Dutch arrived. You see what I mean? One's an innuendo and one's an actual speculation. Both are absolutely ridiculous. But when one tries to figure out what is going on, we come up with these incredibly inadequate reflections. In his Confessions, Augustine speaks of a group of fellow students that were particularly vicious, and they call themselves the wreckers. That's the one translation. The word in Latin means eversores. Eversores. It's a perfect synonym for resentment. Eversores. Or you could say a rebel without a cause. The, t the phrase rebel without a cause is someone who's just filled with it, doesn't know what to do with it, doesn't have a direction in which to vent it. See? And Augustine is writing about this. And he says of them, the wreckers used wantonly to persecute shy and unknown freshmen. Their aim was to persecute them by mockery and so to feed their own malevolent amusement. And it totally baffled Augustine. He could not figure it out. Why are they doing this? The answer, of course, was for no reason, unless you understand the logos of violence, the binding power of violence and our addiction to it. Augustine finally says of them, out of a game and a jest came an avid desire to do injury and an appetite to inflict loss on someone else without any motive on their part of personal gain or settling a score. Without any motive for per personal gain or settling a score. And, and Augustine finally says, quote, who can untie this extremely twisted and tangled knot? You see, he's totally baffled by it. It's a deeply embedded reflex. And I think his deliverer was at hand. René Girard, I think, has untied this knot. René Girard is a cultural theorist at Stanford, retired now at Stanford University, on whom I'm basing all of my insights here. He did all the heavy lifting, and I'm just disseminating it. So we have this violence. First, we have the violence that's sacred. No questions are asked about it. It's really law and order violence, but it's 
more than law and order violence, really. It's sacred violence, the violence of Kabul. And then we have the violence that is semi-sacred. That is to say, it's the violence of, of witch hunting where it's not legal and, it's, and the civil authorities think it's wrong and there are some misgivings, but, but basically people want it to happen. So it's kind of somewhere in the middle. And then you get the violence of Patterson, New Jersey, which has no sacred cover for it at all. And therefore, when asked why it happened, the answer is for no reason. Now, it's been said that if cultural anthropologists could write, a lot of journalists would be out of work. And some of the pieces of journalism I just shared with you are examples of that, because uh, we have to think about these things at, at another level. Take that quip about cultural anthropologists. I said earlier on, you know, that the, to think anthropologically is to, is to be inside a biblical worldview in a way, uh, because the Bible, in a sense, thinks anthropologically, and it certainly awakens an anthropological curiosity, and so on. And sometimes people ask me to define anthropology, and I say anthropology is the study of culture by people who no longer have one. That is to say, it's a study of culture by Westerners. And Westerners have a culture, but it's a post-cultural culture. It's a culture that is outside of the kind of traditional, archaic cultures that have always existed. And we exist outside of those cultures because we have been set free from them, really. For good or ill, it's not all, I mean, there are lots of uh, downsides to this, but we've been set free from them because in order to be inside one of those cultures that's really functioning in the old way in which they all used to function, you have to be willing to gather around this mechanism for taking all the resentment of the community and venting it out onto scapegoats or external enemies. You have to be willing to do that periodically with no moral leftover, with no moral misgivings. And what we now call the West, whatever that means anymore, is that cluster of cultures that have found it increasingly difficult to do that because they have been increasingly aware of the innocence of the victim. And once you become aware of the innocence of the victim, it simply does not work. In other words, the one thing you cannot see and still enjoy the social camaraderie that is generated by these episodes of scapegoating is the innocence of the victim. If you ever see that, the game is up, you see. At that point, you wake up the next day with a moral hangover, you know, you hear the cock crow, you realize what you've done, you think, oh, and the, and the unanimity that may have been momentarily there at the moment when everybody was in a frenzy dissipates overnight. And you have a culture that's still at odds and fractious and resentment is rising because it hasn't been purged.